The Neurodivergent Woman podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. So in today's episode, Monique and I are going to cover acquired brain injury or ABI and the inclusion of acquired brain injury under the umbrella of neurodivergence is something that often people don't really think about intuitively or, you know, maybe we might not think about uh, acquired brain injury as a neurodivergence. But when we expand that term neurodivergence, or I guess what it encompasses, we can actually see that individuals who do have an acquired brain injury actually do fit into, you know, the broad definition of what it means to be neurodivergent. Yeah, agreed. Um, I think that people often think of neurodivergence as something that you're born with. Um, that's it's a neurobiological difference from the um, neurotypical majority or the norm. Um, but you can you can also get acquired neurodivergence. So we know that sometimes our environment interacts with us in ways that change our brain, um, change our functioning in the neurotypical society. And I think often people who do end up acquiring a brain injury, they end up struggling with you know a lot of things that people who are ADHDs or autistic might struggle with, like social interactions or executive functioning. Yeah, exactly. Um, And also when we think about individuals who do have what we would call a developmental neurodivergence, so something that they were born with rather than acquire throughout their life, just because you've got a developmental neurodivergence, that doesn't inoculate you against maybe then acquiring a brain injury or, you know, having something else happen. So for individuals who are developmentally neurodivergent and then experience something like an acquired brain injury, there's often a lot of interactive effects there. So things that kind of overlap and exacerbate each other. So this is why we thought it's actually a really important topic to cover within the lens of neurodivergence. Yeah, and I'm really glad that we're covering this topic with you, Michelle, because, you know, being a clinical neuropsychologist, this is often something that neuropsychologists do get a lot more training in than um, general psychologists and clinical psychologists. Um, Yeah, I really see this as your wheelhouse, I guess, or your area of expertise. (laughs) No pressure. Um, No, you're absolutely right in that um, the majority of neuropsychs do actually work in this field, in the acquired brain injury area. Um, And a lot of what new psychologists do, particularly those working in public health, so in the hospital systems or in, you know, public health systems at large, it's really about 
um, identifying, diagnosing, understanding the cognitive implications of various different acquired brain injuries. And then there's neuroscientists as well who work in the rehabilitation sphere. So that's really about supporting an individual after they've experienced an acquired brain injury, an ABI, to recover as best they can um, and to work with their, you know, cognitive functioning post-ABI and think about how that kind of interplays in lots of different aspects of their life. So their work, um, you know, so their occupation, their study, depending on how old they are, their relationships, their functioning in the community. Um, so this is where a lot of classic sort of public health neuropsychs do work in. For me personally, working in private practice, as most people know, my bread and butter tends to be developmental neuro divergence. Um, but if I kind of dust off the cobwebs of my brain cells and think back to my, my initial training, um, some of it's still there. Uh, so yeah, so we're going to go into a little bit of detail today um, about a couple of aspects of ABI. So firstly, we'll be talking about what actually is acquired brain injury and what are some of the causes of acquired brain injury. And then we're going to talk about how acquired brain injury can actually manifest for different people within the cognitive sphere. So what are the different ways that ABI can look for different people? We'll also chat a bit today about the overlap of ABI and different developmental neurodivergences and how those things can play into each other um, and how those things can sort of exacerbate or interact with each other. And then finally, we'll chat a little bit about the treatment path or the recovery path. Now, I guess as a caveat and uh, all our listeners, I assume you'll get very sick of us saying this by the end of the episode, um, but every single person is different. And one of the really frustrating things for lots of patients who experience an ABI of whatever form is that it's actually incredibly difficult for any of your health practitioners, whether they're physicians or allied health or whatever, to give any concrete, um, I guess, timeframes or this is what you can expect or this is how long it's going to take to recover or this is where, you know, this is the benchmark of what's possible for recovery because it actually is so incredibly varied. So as we chat through these things today, we'll be sticking, I guess, to the more general, but please keep in mind that every individual is different and every individual's journey with ABI and recovery journey is also different. Let's start with um, diving into what actually is an acquired brain injury. So an acquired brain injury refers to any type of brain damage that occurs after birth. So that's that acquired part of it. It's incredibly varied in its causes, as we've said. So this can include things like damage sustained by infection, disease, lack of oxygen, a trauma, so like a blow to the head. Also, we can see long-term damage sustained by things like really heavy long-term alcohol use, medications, drugs, epilepsy. This is something, you know, that often people don't think of initially, particularly when you've got childhood epilepsy. And what often happens is you're a bit between a rock and a hard place in that when you've got quite significant epileptic activity going on in the brain, that activity in and of itself, in particularly in children, when we're wanting to see during that period, huge amounts of neuronal growth and connectivity, that level of activity can disrupt that. 
So if we're not uh, treating that epilepsy, that can lead to damage down the track. But then the other tricky thing is a lot of the medications that work on um, reducing that epileptic activity, how those medications work is they actually dampen down the neuronal activity. That's really good for dampening down the epileptic activity, but it can also cause almost like a pausing or a slowing of neuronal growth right? Because it's just dampening down that response. And so this is what I mean when I say a rock and a hard place, right? There's no correct answer. And really, you know, the most important thing is to reduce the epileptic activity that's happening. And often, you know, what we want to do is get kiddos to a point of remission so that they can eventually reduce the medication or come off the medication. Um, But it's just one of those really tricky things where when we're thinking about a brain in its really early developmental period, everything impacts it right? Everything impacts its growth and development. Um, And something as huge as, you know, consistent and really severe or significant epileptic activity, as well as really heavy duty drugs, right, that are necessary and important, both of those things are going to have a huge impact. So yeah, I think just as an example of the, the variation in all the things that can cause what we think of as an acquired brain injury. Yeah, that's really fascinating, Michelle. I I didn't know that actually about um, epilepsy, but um, something that may not be like super well known is that there actually can be an increased prevalence of epilepsy in autistic people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And it's really interesting too, because even uh, for a lot of autistic individuals who don't meet criteria for like an epileptic syndrome, right? So, you know, to have an epileptic syndrome, there has to be a lot of other features going on as well that kind of, you know, make that that whole uh, or, or fill out that whole criteria. Um, but lots of individuals who, who are autistic actually experience just more neuronal excitability in the brain. And that's kind of that technical term. So they're more likely to experience things like auras, which is generally that sensation that comes on before someone experiences a seizure and also more likely to experience standalone seizures, maybe when they're ill or really tired or quite unwell, right? You know, there's physical stuff going on in the body that is making their immune system and their nervous system sort of in a state of being quite run down. Having these sort of standalone seizures that maybe will never occur again, right? Or don't form part of an epileptic syndrome. So I'm really glad that you raised that, Monique, because I think it's something that's really important to be aware of. So I guess the last thing to say on, you know, what is an ABI is just highlighting too, ABIs can be sudden, so they can be caused by a very specific thing that we're like, yes, you know, A equals B. That specific thing led to this specific outcome and it happened at a very specific point in time. Or it can be more insidious. So kind of developing this slow damage over time that maybe initially we're not quite aware of, but after a long period of time, then we do see that. And this is things like, you know, people who've got um, long-term injuries from long-term heavy alcohol use, people who are experiencing neurodegenerative conditions. So things like dementia, Parkinson's, et cetera, things like this. So things that have this really slow, insidious path, they're still considered an ABI as well. So we actually had a look at the 
Australian Bureau of Statistics survey. So ABLA is actually common. So it occurs in around one in 45 Australians and almost three quarters of those people were under the age of 65. And then we had a look at the stats on children and there's about 20,000 children aged under 15 years with ABI. So people with ABI tend to have complex disability. They reported in this um, survey being part of more disability groups and having more health conditions than the average person with disability. Yeah. And I think that just reflects the complexity and the variation that we see in ABI, all the different things that can happen as an outcome of having an injury that's acquired to your brain, essentially. I'm really glad that we were able to chat through some of those prevalence statistics because ABI can often be a hidden disability. You know, we talk about neurodivergence, like developmental neurodivergence, like, you know, ADHD or autism or whatever, um, those things being what's called a hidden disability in that it's not like, you know, it's not visible. It's not like you're in a wheelchair or it's, you know, externally visible to other people. And ABI is one of those things as well. Um, I remember back when I was doing my study uh, and working on a stroke unit and actually the extremely high amount relative to what you would expect, right, of young stroke survivors and how difficult it is for anyone who's under 40 even to be a stroke survivor because all the supports and everything that people think about stroke is all about older people. And so having all of these effects from a stroke at a young age and then having nobody understand that that's going on for you and getting all of this sort of messaging that like, oh, why can't you do that? Why are you struggling with that? What do you mean you had a stroke? That's crazy. Isn't that an old person thing? So I think it's really important for people to be aware actually how common ABI is in the population. Yeah, I think this is where you also hear about people, um, say you've had a stroke or another form of ABI, finding it really hard to find age-appropriate services and often ending up in like in, living in an aged care service with people um, that are not their own age and have different needs. Yeah, exactly. It's a great point. So we've talked a little bit about um, some of the common causes of ABI being disease processes, um, things like stroke, which, you know, is one of those sudden things that happen, and also epilepsy as a possible cause. So, you know, it's sort of beyond the scope, I guess, of this episode to go into minute detail into every possible cause because we'd be here for 10 hours. Um, but we wanted to just go through a couple of the other key things that, you know, are common causes or things that we might commonly see. So one of the other things that can be a really common cause of ABI is lack of oxygen. So this can often happen at birth and it's still termed an acquired brain injury, even if it happens at birth because it's something that happened to that individual. It wasn't sort of developmental in a sense. So this is often when there's a complication during the birth and the placenta is not able to deliver oxygen to the fetus for you know, a brief period of time or even a prolonged period of time. And that lack of oxygen can actually result in an acquired brain injury. Also, people can experience this exact same type of brain injury when they drown or they nearly drown. 
right? So oxygen deprivation to the brain. And the effects of oxygen deprivation can be extremely pervasive, meaning that they don't just affect one particular system. It often affects multiple systems across the entire brain. Um, So that's a common one that we see. And then the other really common one is a physical injury. So an impact or a blow to the head. So this can happen in sporting injuries. um, If there's a motor vehicle accident, it can happen if someone falls or actually gets in a fight, right? So there's like a physical attack to the head. And again, this is something that we see really varied effects around because it really depends on the type of injury, how severe it is, um, which layer of the brain was damaged. All of these injuries can manifest in so many different ways because it just completely depends on the type and the severity of injury and also the age at injury. How old is that individual? Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like an evening in Jasmine's garden, Merida's mystical Scottish forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like rolling thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. And new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash neuro for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. Awesome. Thanks for going through that for us, Michelle. Um, Yeah, lots of information there. So let's have a chat through in more detail. If you have acquired a brain injury, how does that actually manifest? How does that affect the individual? And this is sort of a million dollar question, right? Like, what is my life going to look like now? My child's life going to look like now? How will this actually, um, yeah, manifest in their cognitive functioning? Um, and, and, you know, their physical functioning as well, but we're going to stick to the cognitive today. And again, I'm going to be incredibly annoying and say it depends. Um, yeah, that's annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Need more detail. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, extremely varied, um, completely dependent on the type and location of the injury. We talked before about age at injury. So just like when we think about things like trauma, 
right? Because trauma actually in a different way is almost like a type of acquired psychological injury. And we know that when individuals experience um, emotional trauma at a really young age, that's going to have a more pervasive effect on their psyche, on their being, on their, you know, how they think about themselves and their place in the world and other people and all of these things. And it's actually the same with a physical injury. So the younger you are at age of injury, generally speaking, and as we flagged at the start of this episode, there's caveats to this, everyone's different, all of that stuff. But generally speaking, the more pervasive the effect is going to be. And that's because, you know, when you're really little, your brain is still growing. So it's kind of like, you know, if you're building a house, right, and there's a crack in the foundation, that's going to have a bigger effect than if you're all the way up to doing the finishing touches and someone doesn't screw on the doorknob, right? Right. So that's going to have a bit of a, you know, less pervasive impact. Um, So age is really important, but also cognitive reserve is important too. So cognitive reserve is really this idea of um, how much banked capacity do you have? So again, so many caveats to this, but if you've got, for instance, two people who have the exact same injury, and even if they have the exact same like physiology, right? Um, So they've got the same sort of health reserve, I guess we might think of that. Um, Two people, everything, all factors are completely equal. Person A has maybe higher cognitive ability in a particular area. Maybe they just have naturally a better memory, right? They've got more capacity to store information, for instance. Maybe that person as well has engaged in lots of activities during their life, which has meant that their brain has more pathways, right? Or more usable pathways. So they've got more connections, more ways of going around a problem or a roadblock. That person is probably going to experience a lesser impact than person B who maybe has less capacity or has less usable roads, for instance. And a really fascinating example of this is, and I'll just go through this quite quickly, but there was a study done, you know, a couple of decades ago, and we'll we'll link it in the, the episode show notes. So you, uh, if you're interested, you can go have a read. Um, but it was basically done on the difference between Alzheimer's disease and Alzheimer's dementia. So dementia is what we call the phenotype, the phenotype being what things look like, what the pattern is on the outside. The disease itself is the actual disease process. So what's happening in the brain that's causing those kind of breakdowns, um, which leads to the dementia. So someone's inability to, you know, remember things or retain new information, you know, all the things that happen there. And this study actually looked at, it was a longitudinal study, so it's looking at a group of people over time, and it looked at this group of nuns, and they found actually that at the end of their life, and they did this via autopsy as well, so looking at their actual brains, at the end of their lives, there were a bunch of these nuns who had Alzheimer's disease, meaning that their brains were riddled with the disease process. But not all of those nuns who had the disease 
actually demonstrated the dementia. So the loss of capacity, the loss of the functional skills. And what the researchers uh, identified as the difference there is the nuns that demonstrated the disease, but not the dementia, were nuns that prolifically wrote about their lives, who were involved in lots of activities, who were constantly learning new information and new skills. And what that actually did is it created a reserve in their brain, where their brains were actually more able to work around the disease process. So I think that's quite interesting and and a good exemplifier of, you know, there being so many different factors that impact how ABI actually manifests in different people. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting study. So with that in mind, though, there are a couple of quite common manifestations uh, for individuals who do experience ABI, the first of which being cognitive fatigue. And this is often one that has the biggest functional impact. So, yeah, it's really common for people with an ABI to actually experience increased fatigue, both mental and physical, and to have some slowing down in how fast they can process information. Uh, this fatigue can also impact, you know, things like planning and problem solving. So sometimes the cognitive fatigue actually leads into the development of executive functioning issues. So even if, um, you know, the parts of the brain that are responsible for executive functioning, like, for example, the frontal lobes, aren't the part of the brain that's being damaged with the ABI, it can actually be the, the cognitive fatigue and slow processing of information itself um, that leads to executive functioning difficulties. Yeah, that's a really great point. And, uh, you know, I think something that's just so important for anyone who's experienced an ABI to be aware of, particularly people who've experienced um, an ABI that's caused by something sudden, like an injury, because, you know, if we get a physical injury, it's very easy for us to understand that we need to rest that part of our body, right? Like if I break my leg, I can very easily understand that continuing to walk on that broken leg is actually just going to damage it further and make it harder for me to recover and make the recovery period longer and maybe even to a point where it's not possible for me to get back to, you know, my leg as it was previously. But for people who've experienced an ABI, that can be such a hard pill to swallow that it's like you actually really need to rest your brain while it recovers. Um, And the cognitive fatigue and the result and effects of that, as you described, Monique, like, you know, the slowed processing of information, the flow on effects to executive functioning stuff can be so frustrating for people, particularly, again, if we're looking at someone who has already like a developmental neurodivergence, like autism or ADHD, the exacerbation of some of those potentially pre-existing executive function challenges can be really difficult. But I can't overstate the importance of following your physician's recommendations around how long you need to rest and what that rest needs to look like. Again, that's different for everyone, depends on the injury, depends on a lot of other factors, but following that rest recommendation, whatever that is for you, is so, so essential. The other thing to be thinking about there when we experience executive function challenges, as you said, Monique, 
even if there wasn't uh, specific damage to the part of your brain, like your frontal lobe, right, where we usually think of this is the area of our brain where executive functioning lives. Because of the complexity of our executive functioning skills, which are actually in essence network skills, meaning that there's whole networks in the brain that are responsible for these particular functions. Even if we experience damage or, uh, you know, particular impact in other areas of our brain, that can still disrupt the network that's responsible for some of these things. This is part of the challenge in identifying, you know, if someone has an acquired brain injury, like what will be the specific cognitive manifestations of that? Um, It's really, really hard to pinpoint that because so many of our skills, particularly our complex skills, yes, sometimes there's particular areas of the brain that are sort of like the hub I guess, for that skill. But our complex skills involve whole networks that run throughout our entire brain. We also know that ABI can also impact people in that it can lead to changes in people's behaviour and personality. It can also lead to changes in the person's physical and sensory abilities, um, their thinking and learning. And it can impact emotional regulation as well. In particular, I guess, with things like emotional regulation, um, there's a lot of different brain systems involved in regulating our emotions. So say if you've had an ABI, what can end up happening is, again, like the differences in terms of um, like how your brain has changed in what networks are available or the processing time that it takes you to process, you know, different stresses in your life as well um, and the impact that that those stresses can have on you, you might find that your ability to cope with things that previously you were able to cope with um, may be impacted. You know, things might be more stressful and cause more emotional dysregulation. And if you're somebody that, um, you know, has had an ABI and you're really struggling with emotional regulation and like impulse control as well, that can make life a lot harder and it can impact, you know, your relationships with people. It can impact um, being in the workplace and going back to work as well. It can impact lots of different areas of your life. So we flagged at the start of our episode today the importance of understanding ABI as a standalone neurodivergence. You know, it's a change to the typical. You're no longer neurotypical, essentially. You know, your your neurological functioning, your cognitive functioning is different to the typical. So we wanted to just, I guess, dig a little bit deeper into this and talk about um, that experience, I guess, of having an acquired brain injury and moving potentially from a neurotypical person to a neurodivergent person um, within your life rather than being born with a neurodivergence. Yeah, I, I think, you know, sometimes if you're born with a neurodivergence that you don't know anything else, you know, you 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 have your own experience of moving through the world and a lot of people who are neurodivergent, um, particularly when they're younger, will be like, oh, I thought everyone thought the way I did or, you know, reacts to things the way I do. And when you learn about how neurotypical people like work and the social hierarchies and things like that, it can be like, oh, really? You know, is that how other people think and feel and, you know, navigate through life? Um, It can come as a little bit of a shock. 
But I think if you have been neurotypical and you're used to maybe functioning in a certain way, you're used to being treated in a certain way by society because you do fit into the norm, you know, maybe there are less barriers, um, you know, that you may not even be aware of that other people have faced, but, you know, you haven't had to face because you've had cognitive, intellectual privileges, um, privileges in terms of fitting in socially and ease, ease in moving through the world. Suddenly to have that change can be such a massive shock for people. And then to have to go through a grueling process of recovery, you know, that can take so much energy and effort. And, you know, sometimes with ABI, you might recover, but you you actually may not be the same person because you've gone through often a traumatic experience. Um, you might have experienced medical trauma. You've experienced loss, so loss of the self, loss of things that you might have taken for granted or not really thought about, you know, may have been taken away. And, you know, not every recovery is predictable in terms of, People may still find that they have to function differently or things that they used to be able to do with ease now cost them more in terms of time and energy. They have less spoons to work with and there are often ongoing like physical effects of ABI, um, mental effects in terms of that fatigue that we talked about. So people can often go through a process of grief because they have been through a loss and they may experience lots of different emotions going through that grieving process, um, you know, numbness, anger, sadness, depression. Some people may have, you know, those moments of acceptance of, you know, like I'm, I'm no longer who I was, but, you know, I've reached the point where I kind of know who I am now and like what does the future look like for me going through life now as someone who has um, been changed by going through an ABI and the recovery process. So yeah, it can actually be a, a lot for people to go through and um, people can be a bit shocked too to see the way that they might be treated and um, often if you do develop a chronic health condition or a disability or neurodivergence as an adult, it can be a little bit shocking in terms of for the first time seeing the ableism that's present in the world and the assumptions that people might make about you based on how you present or what you're able to do or not do. And then also the assumptions about particularly if it's an invisible condition, you might appear to be healthy and functioning okay, but you're going through all these invisible difficulties like pain and fatigue and um, emotional ups and downs. Um, and that can often be invalidated as well. So yeah, it can be a lot. Um, and I think, Michelle, you touched on the stigma of having an ABI as well and suddenly having a disability, whether it's visible or invisible and people, especially if you're a younger person, not understanding, like, why haven't you bounced back? Why why aren't you back to, you know, quote unquote normal, particularly if you've had personality changes? Yeah, I mean, so well put, Monique. I think that's a really good um, summary, I guess, of, yeah, all the psychological changes that can come with um, acquiring a neurodivergence like an ABI. And I think the other thing that can make it so difficult is the not knowing 
because there's so much, like we kind of touched on at the start today, there's so much conflicting information that each individual will get as they go through, you know, their recovery journey or even just, you know, after they're released from hospital, information online, information from other people. And what can happen is stress around, okay, well, I don't know if I just need to accept this as my normal or if I need to be striving to recover this aspect of my functioning. And that not knowing, like, what is just part of me now and what is still, you know, part of my recovery journey is incredibly difficult. And it keeps you in that stuck state of, I don't know how to feel about this. Is this just me now or am I still on a journey of recovery? So I think it's one of these things that has huge implications for identity and identity shift. But unlike something like autism or ADHD, where we can say with absolute confidence, you're always going to be autistic. You'll always be ADHD, right? There's not that quite concrete understanding of, yep, cool, this is my identity. This is who I am now. This is how I function in the world. It's the fluctuation. And I feel like chronic health stuff, you know, Monique, you've talked about this before as well. Like chronic health stuff would be quite similar in that sometimes, you know, you're able to function at one level and other times at a different level. And so the fluctuation, I think, is really difficult. Yeah, and I think to to add to that, it often, like if you've acquired a neurodivergence or like a chronic health condition um, that's affected your ability to work and like how much you can work without it negatively affecting you or draining you, you're used to having, I guess, those neurotypical expectations on you of you should be able to work five days a week and only have four weeks of annual leave a year um, and like perform consistently, be productive, make money, have all of those, I guess, capitalistic um, expectations on you of you're only worth something if you can actually work, you know, and contribute back to society by paying taxes, basically. So sometimes when you go through things like an ABI and, you know, you don't know what your capacity will be long term um, or you may not return to, you know, your previous level of capacity in terms of um, work, it can really make people re-examine what is my worth? What is my role now if I can't be a provider or pay pay my way in society and yeah it actually makes people confront a lot of things around their identity and their self-worth and people can go through a stage of feeling really worthless and feeling like a burden and trying to I guess reconstruct a new sense of identity that might not be centered around productivity um, and work so I think that's that's something that often comes along with acquired disability Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I think part of that path is really trying to get a handle on or understand within yourself, like, what are your gifts? What do you have to contribute? Because we all have something unique to bring to the world. And that's not always like capitalist, you know, productivity, like how much are you producing? How much are you achieving? Right. And exactly as you say, Monique, almost like nothing else is like a slap in the face that, or like a wall, I guess, that you hit that forces you, you know, you can't go any further. You actually cannot continue to operate under this modality or this idea of what a human life is worth or what your life is worth or what your value is. Um, so 
I think my advice, I guess, around that is to be really gentle with yourself and to expect that this is going to be an emotional and an identity roller coaster. Mm-hmm. And you will come out the other side, but it's probably going to take longer than you think it is or longer than you expect that it'll take for you mm-hmm. to feel like you know yourself again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree. So when we think about factors to consider in the recovery phase, we've already talked about a couple of things that are really important. So rest, we've talked about the importance of, you know, being aware of the grief that's involved, the identity shift, all of that stuff. Just a couple of extra things to be aware of. So first thing is actually the importance of physical activity. So this is not running a marathon. This is not going to the gym and, you know, hardcore pumping iron. Consult your physician about what's actually recommended for you and what's appropriate for you. So I just want to caveat that first. But with all of that sort of in mind, actually moving your body and engaging in physical activity is one of the things that we know has the biggest evidence base behind it as something that promotes neuronal growth, right? That promotes a lot of that neuronal recovery. So getting out and moving your body in whatever format is functional for you or, you know, advised for you, right? We're definitely not recommending doing something that's not advised by your physician or that's going to be damaging, but that physical movement is really key. So doing a bit of that every day is something that's really important in that recovery phase. The other thing to be considering during that recovery period is also how important connection is. So sometimes when we're going through huge periods of identity shift, of grief, of function loss, all the things that happen, you know, around an ABI, it can be quite tempting to isolate ourselves and to feel like I have no energy to engage with anyone. I'm feeling really crap. I just want to cocoon. I mean, I get it. That's my go-to when I feel crap. But it's so important that you are maintaining some connections with people that you really love and care about and that love and care about you. So as human beings, you know, our need for relational safety, so feeling safe, feeling loved, feeling connected to other human beings or animals, right? That's important too. Um, But that connection is really important. So I would just flag as something to be mindful of that, yes, while you may need to withdraw from maybe the level of social engagement that you were engaging in prior to, right? Maybe that's not sustainable or functional for you anymore it still is really important to maintain some relational connections and to have that point of connection and and relational safety. And the last thing to flag there is, you know, as we've said uh, through the whole episode today, no two people are alike. No one can expect the same outcome or the same type of difficulties. There's so many unknowns that make it hard to predict ahead of time what the results of rehab will be. But what we do actually know from the research is that not doing rehab, so not engaging in a rehabilitation program, 
that does tend to negatively affect long-term outcomes. So whatever your rehabilitation program looks like, that could be so wildly different from the person next to you and the outcomes could be so wildly different, but it's important to engage in it. Yeah, and I think something to just keep in mind uh, for listeners is um, I think the importance of compassion So, you know, a big thing that Michelle and I talk about on this podcast is really coming at things through the lens of compassion, compassion to others. And I think part of why we wanted to talk about ABI is that it's not something that is talked about a lot in the neurodivergent community. Um, So having compassion towards others with an acquired neurodivergence. And then if you are on the ABI journey, I think, you know, particularly during those acute recovery phases, Um, where things can get really frustrating and demoralizing, I think the importance of practicing self-compassion, you know, as you're going along that journey um, is really important and as you continue to navigate it. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can do so by subscribing to our Patreon. To become part of our Patreon community, you can buy us a coffee for $5 per month or a wine for $10 per month. All of our Patreon subscribers receive access to a backlog of exclusive content and to a monthly live Zoom hangout with us and our Patreon community. Our Zoom hangouts are a place to ask questions, chat about your experiences, and connect with other neurodivergent women. From this season onward, all Patreons will also receive basic episode transcripts released each week after our episode airs. Patreons shouting us to a monthly wine get all that plus one exclusive content post per month. We really appreciate your support as we aim to make quality mental health information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.